0: Chapter thirteen, Part One of Twenty Years of the Republic, eighteen eighty five to nineteen hundred five, by Henry Thurston Peck. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. THE WAR WITH SPAIN, Part One Commodore Dewey, on the Asiatic Station, had his squadron well in hand. The vessels which composed it were not reckoned among the most powerful ships of the new navy, but they were in a state of high efficiency, and in their class they were as good as any in the world. Lying at Hong Kong was the flagship Olympia, a protected cruiser of 5,800 tons and carrying a fine armament of modern guns. With her were the Baltimore, a protected cruiser of 4,600 tons, and the Raleigh, a protected cruiser of 3,217 tons. At Mears Bay on the Chinese coast, 32 miles distant from Hong Kong, were the protected cruiser Boston of 3,000 tons, the gunboats Concord and Petrol, AND THE ARMED REVENUE-CUTTER McCulloch, TOGETHER WITH A COLLIER AND A SUPPLY-SHIP. NOTE 1, PAGE 559. EVERY ONE OF THESE VESSELS HAD RECEIVED THE LAST TOUCH NECESSARY TO THE PERFECTION OF PREPAREDNESS. THE COMPLICATED MACHINERY HAD BEEN OVERHAULED UNDER THE KEEN EYES OF THE COMMODORE HIMSELF. THE AMMUNITION HOISTS HAD BEEN TESTED. ALL THE BUNKERS WERE FILLED WITH COAL, AND THE MAGAZINES WERE STORED TO THEIR FULL CAPACITY. Finally, the crews were superbly disciplined, devoted to their officers, and eager for any duty, however hazardous, that it might be theirs to undertake. As the vessels lay at anchor with steam up, they resembled a group of perfectly trained athletes, impatient for the summons to glorious action. They had been stripped of every inch of superfluous woodwork, and their hulls, no longer snowy white, were painted a sullen slate color, which transformed their graceful jauntiness into a suggestion of something grim and terrible. Commodore Dewey had assumed command on January 3rd, and during the months that followed he had not merely shown himself to be a naval chief of rare ability, but he had indirectly served his country in other and less obvious ways. Here were illustrated once more the force and value of personality in the conduct of great affairs dewey was by birth a vermonter of the very best new england stock and had superimposed upon the sturdy qualities of his ancestry all the tactfulness the courtesy of bearing and the clear sanity of judgment which marked the man who has had long experience of the great world he was now in his sixtieth year alert and vigorous and combining the energy of youth with the sagacity of age professionally his career had well fitted him for great responsibility In the Civil War he had served under Farragut in some of the hottest fights of that fierce struggle. Later he had been chief of the Naval Bureau of Equipment, and a member of the Board of Inspection and Survey. Altogether he was at one and the same time a cultivated gentleman, a scientific expert in naval affairs, and a sailor who in battle would be inspired by the example of the great captain with whom he at once faced the flaming forts and batteries on the lower Mississippi— Hong Kong is one of the most intensely British of all the British dependencies in the East. It is strongly garrisoned and is an important naval station. In 1898, the goodwill of its people, and especially of its official society, was of immense importance to any combatant whose field of action lay in Asiatic waters. Spanish agents swarmed there and in a thousand subtle ways endeavoured to win British sympathy for their cause, and to create a feeling of antipathy towards the United States, by appealing to an underlying strain of dislike and jealousy which they imagined to exist in Englishmen. That they failed utterly and hopelessly must be ascribed, in part at least, to the impression which Commodore Dewey and his staff created during their stay at Hong Kong from January until the end of April. The Anglo-Saxon type of sailor is the same in both of the great English-speaking nations. And from the acting governor down to the youngest middy on shore leave, every Briton recognized in the chiefs of the American squadron blood brothers who fulfilled even the exacting standard which Englishmen apply to those who claim to be officers and gentlemen. What service was rendered to the American cause by the character and personality of the American commander at Hong Kong will presently appear. The dispatch of April twenty-fourth from Washington reached Commodore Dewey in the nick of time. An hour or two before, Great Britain's proclamation of neutrality had been issued, and he must depart at once. The dispatch, therefore, relieved him of all doubt and made his course of action plain. There was no delay. Signals fluttered from the flagship, and soon the Olympia, followed closely by the Raleigh and the Baltimore, steamed out to sea to the music of the National Anthem. As the cruisers swung into the channel, thousands of British soldiers, sailors, and civilians swarmed down to the shore, cheering lustily for Dewey and wishing him Godspeed. "'Good luck to you! Smash the Dons!' was the shout that reached him as a final parting. At Mears Bay he picked up the other vessels of his squadron and on April 27th headed for the island of Luzon. As soon as the open sea was reached the crew of each ship was mustered upon deck, Note 2, page 562. Then was read to them a proclamation issued on the 23rd by the Spanish general Basilio Augustin, military governor of the Philippines. This proclamation is a curiosity in the literature of war. It began. Spaniards, between Spain and the United States of North America, hostilities have broken out. The North American people, constituted of all the social excrescences, have exhausted our patience and provoked war by their perfidious machinations. The struggle will be short and decisive. The God of victories will give us one as brilliant and complete as the righteousness and justice of our cause demand. Spain will emerge triumphantly from this new test humiliating and blasting the adventurers from those states which without cohesion and without a history offer to humanity only infamous traditions and the ungrateful spectacle of a congress in which appear united insolence and defamation cowardice and cynicism A squadron manned by foreigners, possessing neither instruction nor discipline, is preparing to come to this archipelago with the ruffianly intention of robbing us of all that means life, honor, and liberty. The proclamation went on to say that the Americans were endeavoring to substitute Protestantism for the Catholic faith, to plunder and despoil, and to kidnap such of the inhabitants of the islands as were needed to man ships or to labor in the fields. General Augustine surpassed himself in the concluding sentences. Vain designs, ridiculous boastings. Your indomitable bravery will suffice to frustrate the attempt to carry them into realization. The aggressors shall not profane the tombs of your fathers. They shall not gratify their lustful passions at the cost of our wives' and daughters' honor, or appropriate the property your industry has accumulated as a provision for your old age. Filipinos— Prepare for the struggle, and united under the glorious Spanish flag which is ever covered with laurels, let us fight with the belief that victory will crown our efforts, and to the calls of our enemies let us oppose, with the decision of the Christian and the patriot, the cry of Viva España! Note 3, page 563. After this proclamation had been read to the crews by the division officers, the announcement was briefly made. The squadron is bound for Manila, OUR ORDERS ARE TO CAPTURE OR DESTROY THE SPANISH FLEET. CHEER AFTER CHEER RANG OUT WITH A DEEP NOTE OF MARTIAL EXALTATION, AND WHEN THE SHIP'S BAND STRUCK UP THE NATIONAL ANTHEM, THE CHORUS SPREAD FROM FORECASTLE TO CABIN WITH AN ENTHUSIASM THAT CARRIED THE HEARTS OF ALL ON BOARD. NOTE 4, PAGE 563. For a long while both the naval and consular authorities of the United States had been trying to acquire authentic information as to the Spanish land and naval forces in the Philippines. So far back as the end of President Cleveland's administration this secret inquiry began. Commodore Dewey had learned much, yet much was still uncertain. They knew that in the vicinity of Manila lay a Spanish fleet commanded by Admiral Montojo. He also knew just what vessels composed this fleet; but he had been unable to gain any trustworthy information as to their armament and general condition. Nor was he certain as to the place where the Spanish admiral intended to give battle. From the mass of conflicting reports, it seemed likely that Montojo's command was now stationed in Subic Bay, to the northwest of Manila, where the Spaniards had some time before begun to equip a naval station. Commodore Dewey had endeavored to learn the exact nature of the land fortifications around Manila. In 1897, they had consisted of batteries at the entrance of the bay, a formidable earthwork at Sangley Point, and stone redoubts and walls near the city itself. These works mounted many obsolete cannon, but they also had in battery a number of Armstrong breech-loading rifles, and several Palliser muzzle-loaders with an unknown number of Ardenaes and Ontario rifled guns of modern make. How much had been done to strengthen the defences in the preceding months, Commodore Dewey was unable to discover. Spanish agents in Hong Kong spread reports of formidable additions to the artillery, and spoke of mines as having been laid at the entrance of the harbor. In after years it became the fashion to speak lightly of the danger attending the enterprise in which amid those distant seas the American squadron was engaged. But it must be remembered that when Dewey moved out of Mears Bay, he was facing perils the extent of which was totally unknown." The Spanish fleet was numerically much superior, and it had the support of batteries on land equipped with powerful cannon. If the American ships should fail to destroy their adversaries, they would themselves be in a perilous position. All foreign ports were closed to them, and the nearest American harbor was 8,000 miles away. Hence they must either win a decisive victory or else retire to some Chinese or British station there to remain interred until the conclusion of the war. It was then no holiday excursion for the Commodore and his captains, but a warlike venture containing so many elements of the unknown as to justify the utmost vigilance and the most serious concern. In the United States, public expectation was keyed to a high pitch when the cable reported that Dewey was proceeding to the Philippines. What might befall him there, no one could venture to predict. These thoughts may have flitted through the mind of the American commander as he steamed across the China Sea towards the island of Luzon but he was essentially a man of action and his energies and reflections were given first of all to the task immediately at hand at daybreak on april 30th low-lying hills clothed with tropical verdure were sighted by the lookouts and soon the squadron approached the entrance of subic bay where do we believe the spanish admiral to be awaiting him but the boston and the concord searched that port in vain Montojo had reached Subig on the twenty fourth, but finding the land defences incomplete, he had hastened back to Manila exactly one day before the Americans arrived. Calling in his scouts, Commodore Dewey summoned his captains to the flagship for a council of war. It was quickly decided to run the batteries at Manila and to strike the Spanish fleet under the very guns of the protecting forts. As the squadron turned its prows towards the scene of the impending battle, the last touch was given to the work of preparation chain cables were coiled about the ammunition hoists, splinter nets were stretched along the front of the wooden bulkheads, and even the mess tables, chests and chairs were flung into the sea. Note 5, page 566. It was Commodore Dewey's purpose to force an entrance to Manila Bay by night. Of the two channels which lead to it he chose the larger, Boca Grande. He reached its mouth at ten o'clock in the darkness of a tropical evening. Clouds obscured the light of a young moon, and only now and then to the eyes of the watchful navigators did the land loom dimly into view. On each side lay the Spanish batteries. Ahead was a huge gray rock, El Fraile, where unknown to the Americans were mounted guns of formidable caliber. Beneath the black waters were mines which the closing of an electric circuit would explode with frightful power. But Dewey's purpose was unalterable. With the batteries, if necessary, his guns would reckon. While, as to the mines, he may have recalled the vigorous order of his old commander, Farragut, at Mobile Bay. Damn the torpedoes! Full steam ahead! No bugle sounded as the men were sent to their respective stations, but whispered orders passed from mouth to mouth. In complete darkness, save for a single white light at the stern, the vessels fell into line and passed slowly up the channel, the Olympia leading, and after her in order, the Baltimore, the Raleigh the Petrol, the Concord, the Boston, the McCulloch, and the Colliers. As they approached the giant rock El Fraile, a Spanish sentry sighted the gleaming stern light of the Olympia. Signals flashed amid the darkness. A rocket hissed upwards and burst high overhead. Then from the battery on the south shore, a long stream of fire shot out, followed by the crash of cannon. El Fraile of a sudden was circled by flames as its guns joined in the deadly chorus then thundered in reply an American broadside. The Raleigh, Concord, Boston, and McCulloch hurled a tempest of projectiles at the forts on shore. One six-inch shell from the Concord exploded in the midst of the Restinga battery, silencing it in less than three minutes after it had gone into action. Two mines burst with a terrific roar ahead of the Olympia. But she received no harm, and soon the squadron, uninjured and once more silent, had passed on into the broad waters of Manila Bay. The city lay twenty miles ahead. From the American squadron its clustered lights could be seen twinkling in the distance. With speed reduced to four knots, the invaders moved slowly up the bay, and at a little before five o'clock the dawn of a tropical morning revealed a long gray line of Spanish ships, made more conspicuous by their contrast with the snow-white walls of the arsenal at Cavite before which they were lying. Admiral Montojo had been kept informed of Dewey's movements since the latter left Meare's Bay on april twenty seventh He knew that the Americans had entered Subic Harbor and that they had then headed their ships in the direction of Manila. But as he viewed the situation, Manila and his own fleet were safe from immediate attack. The unwarlike and undisciplined Yankees would not dare to attempt the passage through the Boca Grande and receive the fire of its forts. They would doubtless blockade the entrance and try to pick off a few Spanish merchant vessels as affording a safe and easy conquest. Therefore, Admiral Montojo's officers and men had leave freely granted them, and many of them were in bed on shore when the distant booming of cannon came faintly up the bay in the midnight stillness. A few minutes later and word reached the Admiral that not only had the audacious American Commodore entered the Channel, but that he had safely passed the forts and was even now moving up the bay to grapple with the Spanish fleet. Then there was wild excitement in Manila, bugles sounding, drums beating, and a hasty muster of all who were ashore. Admiral Montojo's entire command consisted of a score of vessels, including two swift liners. Note 6, page 568 which had been converted into auxiliary cruisers. But of this number several were only Mosquito gunboats, note 7, page 568, while others were not in condition for service. Note 8, page 568. To meet the American squadron, there were drawn up in a long, crescent-shaped line of battle seven ships of war, the Reina Cristina, flagship, Don Antonio de Ulia, Don Juan de Austria, Isla de Cua, Isla de Luzon, Cano, and Marqués del Duero. Of these ships, the Reina Cristina was the most powerful, being of 3,500 tons displacement and carrying a battery of 6-inch and 2-inch modern guns, with a secondary battery of rapid-firing three-pounders. The other Spanish vessels were smaller than the flagship, ranging from 3,000 to 500 tons, but with excellent guns. There were also four torpedo boats, two of which took part in the action. In tonnage and in armament, this fleet was decidedly inferior to the American squadron, yet it was supported by land batteries at Cavite and at Sangley Point, and by the guns mounted at the naval arsenal behind it. From the point of view of the military theorist, the odds were on the whole decidedly in favor of the Spaniards. At a few minutes after five, there fluttered from the signal mast of the Olympia the order, Prepare for general action. And a moment later, on all of the American ships the stars and stripes were broken out. At once the gaudy colors of Spain flew from the opposing line, and the guns of the shore batteries blazed, followed shortly by a broadside from the Spanish fleet. Commodore Dewey and his flag officer, Captain Gridley, stood on the bridge of the Olympia, tranquilly observing the shell fire of the enemy, which lashed the waters about them into yellow foam. Presently the Commodore, turning quietly to his companion, remarked in a casual tone: You may fire when you are ready, Gridley. An eight-inch forward gun roared from the Olympia's turret, and soon every American ship had found the range and was smothering its doomed antagonists with projectiles. Five times did Dewey pass slowly up and down the Spanish line, lessening the distance at each turn. The Spanish gunners could not stand the terrific storm of steel that burst about them. Their shots flew wild, for they fired without aim. At half-past seven... Commodore Dewey, having been erroneously informed that his supply of five-inch shells was running low, drew off his ships to take account of his remaining ammunition. During this interval, the men at the guns were served with breakfast. Misunderstanding the maneuver, the Spanish governor cabled to Madrid a message announcing that the Americans had been repelled with heavy loss. When the order to withdraw was given, Dewey did not know how badly his fire had damaged his opponents. But observation soon revealed the fact that the Spanish squadron had been practically wiped out of existence. The Reina Cristina was keeled over so that her bulwarks were awash. The Castilla was on fire. Two torpedo boats had been sunk. Of the other vessels, only one, the Don Antonio de Ulla, was fit to continue fighting. And presently, when its captain disobeying Montojo's orders, sallied out to renew the battle, the gallant little gunboat was smashed and sunk by the concentrated fire of three American cruisers. The Spaniards were not only beaten, they were annihilated, and only the shore batteries remained. Commodore Dewey sent a brief message to the Governor-General that unless the shore fire from Manila ceased at once, the city would be shelled. The threat was effective and the squadron steamed back to Cavite where, after a brief and brilliant action, the forts and earthworks were knocked to pieces and the gunners driven out by a hail of bursting shells. It was now high noon, and the Battle of Manila had been fought and won. Note 9, page 570. In the space of seven hours the United States had conquered a footing in the Orient. Commodore Dewey now sent a message to the Governor-General asking that the cable be neutralized, and that both Spaniards and Americans be allowed to use it. General Augustine refused, whereupon Dewey ordered it to be fished up and cut, thereby severing the Philippines from telegraphic communication with the world. The Zafiro hastened to Hong Kong and then cabled the following historic dispatch to Washington. Manila, May 1. Squadron arrived at Manila at daybreak this morning immediately engaged the enemy and destroyed the following vessels, Reina Cristina, Castilla, Don Antonio de Ulla, Isla de Luzon, Isla de Cua, General Lezo, Marqués del Duero, Cano, Velasco, Isla de Mindanao, a transport and a water battery at Cavite. The squadron is uninjured and only a few men are slightly wounded. Only means of telegraphing is to American consul at Hong Kong. I shall communicate with him. Dewey. AND A SECOND DISPATCH ADDED, MAY 4TH. I HAVE TAKEN POSSESSION OF NAVAL STATION AT Cavite, HAVE DESTROYED THE FORTIFICATIONS AT BAY ENTRANCE, PAROLING THE GARRISON. I CONTROL BAY COMPLETELY AND CAN TAKE CITY AT ANY TIME. THE FIRST OF THESE DISPATCHES REACHED WASHINGTON ON MAY 7TH AND WAS AT ONCE MADE PUBLIC. POPULAR ENTHUSIASM WAS UNBOUNDED. SO SWIFT AND SO COMPLETE A VICTORY THRILLED THE ENTIRE NATION. A decisive naval battle in far distant waters appealed to the imagination of Americans as possessing an element of the Romantic. Commodore Dewey's portrait was everywhere displayed. Within a few hours he had become a popular hero. President McKinley at once advanced him to the rank of acting Rear Admiral and cabled him the thanks of Congress and his countrymen. The war was now more popular than ever— AND BOTH PRESIDENT AND PEOPLE FELT THAT THIS GREAT SUCCESS ON SEA MUST BE FOLLOWED UP BY OPERATIONS ON LAND. DEWEY'S SECOND TELEGRAM HAD DECLARED THAT HE COULD TAKE THE CITY AT ANY TIME, BUT IT WAS OBVIOUS THAT HE HAD NOT MEN ENOUGH TO HOLD IT. NOTE 10, PAGE 571. SHOULD SPAIN DISPATCH AN EXPEDITION TO THE PHILIPPINES? HENCE GENERAL T. M. ANDERSON WAS DESIGNATED TO COMMAND THE FIRST OF SEVERAL RELIEF EXPEDITIONS and he set sail from San Francisco on May 24th, with a body of 2,500 troops carried by three transports and escorted by the cruiser, Charleston. Note 11, page 572. The news of the Battle of Manila Bay was heard with very diverse emotions in the various countries of Europe. Before the cable was cut by Dewey, Governor-General Augustine had telegraphed to Madrid the tidings of disaster, declaring, however, that the Americans had suffered heavy losses— Even his euphemistic language, however, could not conceal the essential facts. It was plain that the American squadron had won a brilliant victory. In London, another great demonstration took place in favor of the United States. The last vestige of doubt as to American prowess was swept away, and such pro-Spanish journals as the Globe and Morning Post took refuge in a sulky acquiescence. The other London dailies reflected the popular admiration for the United States. A leading article in the Times, May ninth, declared, The destruction of the Spanish fleet was as complete as any achievement in naval annals. Dewey showed himself worthy alike of the finest traditions of the United States Navy and of his kinship with the race that produced Nelson. Said the Daily News of the same date, Dewey's dispatches in their conciseness and modesty are in accordance with the best naval traditions. The battle establishes a record among contests of the kind, for one of the combatants destroyed the whole fleet of the other without himself suffering any loss whatever. It is especially worth noting that the discipline on the American ships is reported to have been perfect, for many Spanish authorities and some independent critics thought that this might be a weak point on the American side. The excellence of the American tactics and the superiority of marksmanship are certain to be a prominent feature of this war. But it was not only from the British press that expressions of friendship came. On May 13th, the Right Honourable Joseph Chamberlain, speaking to an immense audience in Birmingham, declared amid prolonged cheering that, though war be terrible, it would be cheaply purchased if in a great and noble cause the Stars and Stripes and the Union Jack should wave together over an Anglo-Saxon alliance. And even more significant were some sentences uttered by the Prime Minister, Lord Salisbury, at the annual meeting of the Primrose League. Referring to Spain and China, he said, those States are becoming weaker, and the strong States stronger; and he drew a contrast between "living nations" and "dying States." So frank a declaration from a responsible statesman had a meaning of its own, and ere long the importance of Great Britain's attitude was to become apparent to the world. In Spain Governor-General Augustine's elusive despatch of the morning of May first set Madrid ablaze with joy, Houses were decorated and flags flew. For a few hours Spanish pride was gratified to the full. Then came the crushing truth, and with it a feeling of anger and despair. The press cried out for revenge, but even the government organ could find few words of hope. It said, Yesterday was a sad but glorious day for Spain. Let the people be calm, and allow nothing to shake their confidence in the future triumph of Spain. Note 12, page 573. But the depression in Madrid was more than matched by the chagrin and deep resentment excited in Paris and Berlin. The French had welcomed the dispatch of Augustine with glee. The Parisian press had been predicting a Spanish triumph, and the people believed for a time that such a triumph had occurred. Even Augustine's later report was received with incredulity. Spanish agents still asserted that Montojo had led Dewey into a trap. But conviction could not be long withheld. On May 3rd, the Tan editorially remarked, The United States put into balance so crushing a superiority of resources and of force as to leave no doubt of the result. As soon as Castilian honor has received the satisfaction which it requires, will not the moment come for Europe to speak its word. The notion that Europe or some European power should interfere in the progress of events at Manila was one that found warm support in official Germany. The press of Berlin had on May 2nd received from Spanish sources the news of Dewey's victory, but it was either suppressed or published with expressions of doubt as to its being exaggerated or false. A little later, the colnichet Volkszeitung zeitung remarked editorially, We do not favor intervention in this war, but we are of the opinion that the European powers ought to exert strong diplomatic pressure at the first opportunity in order to shorten the struggle. The Yankees are already swollen with pride. If they win another decisive victory, scarcely any European nation will be able to associate with them diplomatically. In view of the unfriendly sentiments entertained in the United States towards Germany, and the many economic disputes between the two countries, it is very possible that Germany may be made the next victim of American impudence. Note 13, page 574. Actual intervention was, however, hardly contemplated by the German Foreign Office, the Kaiser, whose unfavorable opinion of the United States was not a spontaneous impression of his own, but had been inherited by him as one of the Yankee traditions' openly expressed admiration of American prowess at Manila. When the news reached him, he is reported to have exclaimed, There is evidently something besides smartness and commercialism in the Yankee blood. Those fellows at Cavite fought like veterans. Note 14, page 575. Nor were his most reckless advisers ready to suggest a course of action that would certainly plunge Germany into a transatlantic war. Yet there were reasons why, without a resort to arms, German policy demanded that the attitude of the empire toward the United States, especially in the east, should be one of unfriendliness if not of actual menace. In the preceding year, Germany had coerced China into giving up the port of Kiaochao, with some adjacent territory in the northerly province of Shantung, This was intended to be the starting point for a vast extension of German influence both commercial and military. It marked another step in the Kaiser's colonial policy, which was to end by making Germany the rival of Great Britain in the Orient. If the Philippines were to fall from Spain's enervated hand, they would be a rich prize for the power that might be ready and waiting to receive them. Why should not this power be Germany? The Americans in their new-born ambition would possibly consider the retention of the islands. If so, they must be made to drop the project. In plain language, they must be bullied out of it. Germany must display so marked a show of force and must carry things off with so high a hand as to make the Yankees glad to abandon the Philippines so soon as the first fighting should be over. The scheme was essentially Bismarckian in its arrogance. Its execution was begun with Bismarckian promptness. On May 13th, Admiral Dewey, in a dispatch to the Navy Department, mentioned the fact that certain foreign warships had arrived in Manila Bay and were observing its operations. These vessels consisted of a British gunboat, a small Japanese cruiser, a French cruiser, the Brics, and two German vessels. Presently, the German contingent was rapidly augmented until it reached the proportions of a squadron. On June 13th, there were four German ships of war, observing operations, On June 23rd, there were five of them. Note 15, page 576. These were the newly built first-class steel cruiser, Kaiserin Augusta, the battleship Kaiser, the swift second-class cruisers Irene and Princess Wilhelm, and the gunboat Cormoran. It was announced that another battleship, the Deutschland and the cruiser Gepion were soon to join the squadron. Note 16, page 576 thus concentrating at Manila the entire naval force maintained by Germany in Asiatic waters. In tonnage, in guns, and in armor, this squadron outclassed the ships which Admiral Dewey had at his disposal, and its mere presence involved at once a problem and a menace. No such number of vessels was necessary, since in Manila Germany had no obvious interest to protect, and hence, upon any Pacific hypothesis, this naval display was quite inexplicable there were peculiar reasons why admiral dewey and his command should view the presence of the germans with distrust and even positive displeasure before the declaration of war between the united states and spain but while hostilities seemed more than probable prince henry of prussia had arrived at hong kong in command of several german ships of war Prince Henry had been dispatched to the Far East by his brother the Kaiser, who in taking leave of him had announced in a highly rhetorical speech that his expedition was sent out for the purpose of displaying Germany's mailed hand in the Orient. Prince Henry arrived at Hong Kong in the month of March. His officers were not at all reticent in publicly expressing their sympathy with Spain, and the prince himself committed a breach of etiquette which seemed to show distinct unfriendliness to the United States. He gave a banquet to the officers of the foreign warships then at Hong Kong, among them being Commodore Dewey and several members of his staff. In the course of the banquet, the prince proposed a series of toasts to the great powers, naming them in alphabetical order according to the French form. Thus, first of all, he raised his glass to Germany, Allemagne, then to England, Angleterre, although that nation should have been toasted as Great Britain, Grande-Bretagne, and then to Spain, Espagne then should have come the toast to the United States, Etats-Unis, but the name was omitted by Prince Henry who next drank to France. At this open affront to his country, Commodore Dewey made a sign to his officers, and with him they at once left the banquet hall, quietly but without ceremony. The affair caused a marked sensation, and naval sentiment at Hong Kong even among foreigners censured the discourtesy of Prince Henry. Therefore, on the following day, one of his staff was sent to make a roundabout verbal apology to the American Commodore. Dewey, however, refused to receive it in that form. The slight, he said, was not personal to himself, but had been offered the country which he had the honor to serve. It had come from the Prince and publicly. Hence the apology must also come from him either in person or in writing." Prince Henry thereupon did call upon Commodore Dewey and made a formal apology, saying that he had forgotten to keep the French order of names and had carelessly thought of the United States in the German form Veranied Staten. Note 17, page 578. When the Kaiserin Augusta reached Manila early in June, she brought with her Vice-Admiral von Dieterich, who was in command of the German naval force in Asiatic waters. This officer was thoroughly imbued with a dislike for everything American, and his personal prejudice seems to have led him to go further than even his instructions warranted. Not merely were his official acts of an unfriendly and at times threatening character, but he exhibited a certain boorishness and gratuitous incivility which could not have been justified in an open enemy. By the usages of international law, a blockaded port is under control of the blockading force, and the officer in command of such a force is entitled to make and to maintain regulations governing all vessels which may enter the waters dominated by his guns. Admiral Dewey, knowing that there were Spanish gunboats in other parts of the Philippines, very properly required that no ship should enter the harbor of Manila after nightfall, guarding in this way against possible attack upon his own squadron by torpedo boats and other hostile craft. The German vice-admiral chose to consider such a regulation unwarranted. His own ships, therefore, moved about from point to point without notice to Admiral Dewey, and they did so in the night as well as in the daytime. When this occurred within the harbor, the American ships directed their searchlights full upon the German vessels, thus keeping them always under a brilliant glare. But on several occasions German cruisers, after leaving the harbor, entered it by night in defiance of the American admiral's orders. After this had happened twice, Admiral Dewey desisted from further verbal protest and decided upon vigorous action. Presently, a German ship came stealing in under cover of the darkness. As she neared the inner waters, a shell was fired directly across her bow, and the blaze of a searchlight revealed the Baltimore with decks cleared and her crew at the guns ready to follow up the monetary shell with a full broadside. Admiral von Diederich was furious, but thereafter this particular regulation was not broken. Another like incident, however, was still more serious in its possible results. One evening in the dusk, a strange launch was described making its way silently towards the Olympia. Though twice hailed, it made no answer. Both Admiral Dewey and his flag captain were on the Olympia's deck. Through the darkness they saw the launch still steaming rapidly in the direction of the flagship. THE ADMIRAL AT ONCE ORDERED A SHOT TO BE FIRED IN MORNING. AND WHEN EVEN THEN THE LAUNCH CONTINUED ON ITS WAY, A GUNNER WAS DIRECTED TO FIRE AGAIN AND FIRE TO HIT. A CANNON ROARED AND A SOLID SHOT STRUCK WITHIN THREE FEET OF THE LAUNCH, DRENCHING IT WITH WATER. IMMEDIATELY THE INTRUDER STOPPED AND DISPLAYED THE GERMAN COLORS. AN AMERICAN LAUNCH DARTED OUT FROM THE SIDE OF THE OLYMPIA AND OVERHAULED THE STRANGER, WHICH WAS FOUND TO BE IN COMMAND OF A STAFF OFFICER OF THE GERMAN ADMIRAL. This person was taken aboard the Olympia, ashen white, with fear and anger. He was ordered into the presence of Admiral Dewey, who said to him with ill-concealed indignation, "'Do you know what you have done? Do you know that such a rash act on your part is against all the rules of war and might have brought serious trouble to your country and mine? It would have been easy for a Spanish boat to hoist a German flag and sink the Olympia if we failed to stop it. There is no excuse for such carelessness.' PRESENT MY COMPLIMENTS TO YOUR ADMIRAL AND ASK HIM TO DIRECT HIS OFFICERS TO BE MORE CAREFUL IN THE FUTURE. NOTE 18, PAGE 580. IN MANY OTHER WAYS THE GERMANS' ATTITUDE WAS VEXATIOUS AND ANNOYING. THEY HELD CONSTANT COMMUNICATION WITH THE SPANIARDS ON SHORE. THEY HAD AN IRRITATING HABIT OF FOLLOWING THE AMERICAN VESSELS ABOUT THE HARBOR. AGAIN AND AGAIN THEY VIOLATED THE MINOR REQUIREMENTS OF THE BLOCKADE. In every possible fashion they made evident an unfriendly spirit, and at times it seemed as though they were eagerly awaiting an opportunity for actual hostilities. Admiral Dewey kept his temper wonderfully well, and though his ships were inferior to those of von Diederich, he took as firm a tone as though he were backed by a great fleet. Yet he, and all his command, longed for the reinforcements which he knew were coming, and especially for the great Monitor Monterey, whose heavy armor and twelve-inch guns made her more than a match for the most powerful of the German ships. The Kaiser and the Deutschland, the two German battleships, were in fact not very formidable vessels in their own class. They had been launched nearly twenty-five years before, and one of the new American battleships could have blown them out of the water in five minutes. Yet they carried modern ten-inch guns, and Dewey's unarmored cruisers were no fit antagonists for them. End of chapter thirteen, Part One.